Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. My Christmas present to you this week is bringing on the great Cole Kubelik from ESPN, the SEC Network, and he is the co-host of The Morning Show on WJRX Radio in Birmingham, Alabama with Greg McElroy. Nobody breaks down a game better than Cole, so I'm bringing him on to dig into the college football playoff semifinals. We'll get into how Alabama transformed its offense against Georgia and what that means for the Tide's Cotton Bowl matchup against Cincinnati. The Bearcats have some elite top-end talent, but is their depth enough? to stay with Alabama for four quarters. How can Desmond Ritter and company deal with tied game wrecker Will Anderson? How will Bryce Young attack Cincinnati's talented secondary led by All-America cornerbacks Ahmad Gardner and Kobe Bryant? Then we jump to the Orange Bowl, where Georgia faces Michigan. Cole's main question with the Bulldogs is what is their state of mind? after getting their air of invincibility shattered by Alabama. Michigan probably won't attack Georgia's vaunted defense the way Alabama did, but that doesn't mean the confident Wolverines can't be successful. And what should Kirby Smart do at quarterback for Georgia? Stick with Stetson Bennett or switch to JT Daniels? Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us at appodcast.com where you can also find my colleague Rob Motti's NFL podcast. It is excellent. You can find us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, just about anywhere you like to find your pods. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to give us a good review and rating. It helps college football fans find us, and it helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me today on the podcast for a college football playoff preview is the great Cole Kublik. He is, uh, you can find him on ESPN, Colin Bowl Games, SEC Network. You can find him on his radio show at WJOX in the mornings um, uh, down in Alabama. Cole, thanks so much for squeezing me in. I know you are a busy, busy man these days, bouncing from bowl game to bowl game. Uh, it's always good to be with you, Ralph. I appreciate you having me. All right, so we'll, let's do it this way. We're going to start with the games as the order they are played. And I'm going to have you jump into the uh, the X's and O's and whether and let's start with the uh, the Cotton Bowl and Cincinnati against Alabama. Cole, I think a lot of people are like, well, I think there's a lot of people who don't want to see Cincinnati in this game. I think there are a lot more people who are like me who are like, listen, I think they earned their chance to fight the dragon, but I'm not sure this is going to go very well for the dragon fighters. So let's start with this. In what ways do you see Cincinnati having a path to sort of staying competitive here? Or do you even think Cincinnati has a path to being competitive here? I think they can. I think, I think there is one. And a lot of it, unfortunately for Cincinnati, is going to have to do with Alabama and which Alabama team shows up. Because we, we saw Alabama look lackadaisical against Arkansas down the stretch, obviously against Auburn down the stretch and then look magnificent against Georgia. really looked like two different teams. Now, you could, you could debate whether or not you're trying to play a new right tackle, whether your center was dinged up, and, and how much that impacted things, how much that affected things. But 
the reality is we've seen a Jekyll and Hyde Alabama team for the last month of the season. And if the Alabama team that showed up against Georgia shows up, I, I think it will be very difficult for Cincinnati to keep it competitive for four quarters. But we haven't seen that team all the time. But I do think either way, there are some there's some ways that Cincinnati can be problematic. And I think first and foremost are the options on offense. Obviously, Jerome Ford knows the team well, transferred from Alabama. You have an experienced quarterback who I think can be accurate and can get the ball out quickly when he needs to and has multiple weapons that he can utilize. I don't think this is an offense that has relied so much on just one person on the perimeter to be able to make itself go. Also, you have a quarterback that, if need be, and I'm sure there will be some that are designed, can utilize his legs. Quarterback runs can be effective inside that Cincinnati offense. Uh, I do not believe that that tempo or a fast pace is going to be favorable for Cincinnati. Uh, I, I don't think from a depth perspective, that they're built very well to have that type of a game. I think across the board, Cincinnati's ones are, are not far off from most power five teams in college football, better than, than a lot. Yeah. But I think when you start to get to the twos and, and the threes and you begin to having to substitute a lot, that was where things could become an issue. Um, so I think offensively, there are ways to quickly distribute the football, utilize motions, utilize misdirection and take advantage of just a, an intelligent, heady quarterback that knows where to get the ball. That's pretty much seen everything. That's there's a there's a lot of value in that when you're facing a team like Alabama that's just going to be maybe more athletic, faster, more talented than you. But you got to go find those holes in that defense, like Florida did early in the season, like Arkansas did for a while. Take some of the things that those teams utilized, and a lot of it was visual deception. And I think there are portions of what Cincinnati offers offensively they can be utilized that way. They may have to do a little bit more of it than they've been doing in the past to be able to try and survive. Two quick things. Are there holes in Alabama's uh, back seven pass coverage? Let's start with that one. I think there can be. Mm -hmm. And, and I think, I mean, did they the have like lockdown? Did they, I mean, it seems like they're, they're, they're not at, quite like at the lockdown corner stage as they have been in the past with certain and, and some of the other guys. No, I, I don't think that they are as talented at corner as some of the other Alabama teams that we've seen. And then now we've seen the nickel become a place where people can attack them a little bit. Also, Malachi Moore hasn't been playing much the last few weeks. They've had to sort of rotate him out. Um, and there's really no injury behind that. So I think a lot of it has been just because of some of the matchups and how they've gone. So I do think that there are areas of that secondary that can be had. And I actually think that there are areas with the second level of that defense that can be had also. If you can force certain linebackers into coverage, that can give you some big advantages. The problem, obviously, that we've seen a lot of, a lot of teams have trouble with is you know, 31 doesn't seem to be blocked very often. Yeah, well, and, and that was, I was going to say, is there, I don't know if there's a way to stop Will Anderson, but is their pass rush mostly Will Anderson? In other words, if, they're, if they can figure out some ways to keep him from totally wrecking the game, does Alabama have other sort of, you know, ways to generate pass rush? But again, I don't even know if that's a question that's worth asking because nobody can seem to block this guy. And if you have to commit the resources that you need to block this guy, inevitably it's going to help everybody else. I almost, Ralph, don't – I wouldn't go into the game so much worrying about figuring out a way to block him as I would 
game planning him. And, you know, you get a lot of people that they, they try to, they try to roll by the old adage that it's just lazy and, and honestly hardly ever works is when you get an elite pass rusher, just run right at him, just run, run at him, run at him and you'll neutralize him. And it just, it's not, it's not a real thing. I mean, it, it wasn't a real thing for Miles Garrett. It's not a real thing for Will Anderson. Um, you know, it, it wasn't a real thing for Cleveland Farrell, like all these edge guys that people think all they do is just dip and rip and swim moves and spin moves and rush the passer. Like watch Jaden Hutchinson. People don't just run at him, mm-hmm. you know, and he, he's, he, he makes plays when people do that. So Will Anderson's a legitimate playmaker. And I think Pete Golding does a good job utilizing his skill set. He doesn't just let him play straight up. They move him a lot and you'll see him be the penetrator on twists. You'll see him be the loop man on twist. You'll see him slant. And he's really good when he's on the move. I think he's much more dangerous on the move than just straight up. And he's damn good straight up. So, but when he gets a one-way go, he's virtually unstoppable. So it makes it very difficult to plan for him. But I think you have to have different ways in how you call the game to sort of have some answers for him. I I would try to find out early on, is he going to attack the mess or is he going to sit back on the mess? then can you zone read him a little bit? Are there screens you can throw at him? Do you want to try to run some stuff to the, to the perimeter to his side to get him moving a little bit more than normal? Can you crack him with a tight end or a wide receiver trying to take him out of his game a little bit? I'd run some split zone away from him and let my tight end come across and probably go low on him a few times just to try to slow him down, get him thinking, just make him use his hands a little bit more maybe than he has in some other games. You can't just be you, though. That, that's the biggest problem that I've seen with a lot of teams that have faced Will Anderson this year. They go in saying, well, we're just going to do what we do, and that's not going to work. It just, it just isn't. And it was kind of like Alabama's game plan offensively going into the Georgia game. They couldn't just be who they had been, but Bill O'Brien tweaked it just enough to where they could find sustained success. So I don't think that secondary is what it has been. And it's not just Will Anderson up front. You know, I think Federer Mathis has had a great year, and he's yeah. a guy that's loose yeah. enough to win some of those one-on-one battles up front. And the other really sort of interesting thing about that defensive front is there, there kind of seems to be a different guy every few weeks that just steps up. Like, we've seen Tim Smith have a good game or two. Uh, we've seen Byron Young have a couple of really nice games. Now, they'll disappear at times, but they'll show up big and do some things. A big deal show up. You know, now you got Dallas Turner that shows up occasionally and does some different things. So. It's a little bit more by committee maybe than some of the other Alabama fronts that we've seen in the past outside of Will Anderson. But they do have other guys that occasionally step up and help, some more consistent than others. And I think if there's outside of Will Anderson and Fidaria Mathis, that's the issue with that front. It's just inconsistency. They haven't been great every week, and that's what allowed some other teams to be able to find some success. Okay, so now we'll flip to the other side of the ball. And you said, you know, hey, listen, Alabama, they did some things differently and they became a little bit of a different offense against Georgia. And it was an offense that was unbelievable. And the week before, it was an offense that was sputtering all over the field in the Iron Bowl, uh, not necessarily unable to move the ball, but unable to finish drives and, and, and convert third downs and protect their quarterback. So I guess the, the two-part question to this is, what did they do? And did what they did against Georgia, is that something that should work again? I I can't imagine why if it worked against Georgia, it wouldn't work against the Cincinnati team. Very good on the back end, a little small up front, but with a fair amount of speed on its defense. Right. I I think the first thing that you 
that you have to be curious about or wonder about or be anxious to see is how Cincinnati will match up its corners on Jamison Williams because you have a really big physical long corner who's not quite as twitchy and then maybe a little bit of a lesser corner who's a little bit faster, has a little bit better speed, but obviously doesn't bring the size. And obviously that's the direction you would think you would want to go with Jamison Williams just based on the way that he runs and how explosive he is. I I do think that Cincinnati has individuals up front that can be problematic. Yes, that offensive line played great against Georgia, but once again, Ralph, they, they have not played great multiple times in the last month of the season. Now, they've, they've been moving pieces around, and Seth McLaughlin had a great game against Georgia, but that was his first start and first time we've seen him. Um, you know, Javion Cohen didn't play great against Georgia, but it didn't matter because the ball was getting out quick, and they didn't really put an emphasis to his side. Chris Owens was back at right tackle, and he had a really nice game against Georgia. We've seen him have some letdown moments across the course of the year. So just how that group performs is going to dictate a lot of what Bryce Young, what Bill O'Brien are able to call and do and execute. But what they did different, in my opinion, was they went away from being as RPO and play action heavy as they had been the majority of the season. And Durante Jones, LSU defensive coordinator, is probably the one that everybody has that could key back to and hold responsible for why they even were really forced to adjust this. And Derek Mason to an extent as well. But what Durante Jones did is there were some zero blitzes where they, they brought the house, played man coverage on the outside. But the assistant, I spoke to Durante because we had him their next game, was to pressure at the back. So to pressure to the running back. And when you think about an RPO by nature, the running back has to move. So the running back has to come across the face of the quarterback. He'll put the ball in the belly of that back. And then he'll pull it out and he'll throw a pass or he can hand it off to the back if that's his read. Sometimes you just get that and it's a call to RPO where Bryce Young's going to throw it. But you still want to show the motion to force the defense play the same way, somewhat similar to a play action. But obviously how you block a play action is going to be a little bit different because your guys aren't blocking run. They're blocking pass at that point, And it just looks and feels a little bit different. Well, I think Bill O'Brien got away from that thinking that People have found that the weakness is to pressure to our back because we're essentially removing bodies away from that side of our protection. So if they overloaded it late or got to it late, Alabama just didn't have the numbers to pick it up. It's one thing that LSU did a magnificent job of when they really caused a lot of problems for that offense late in the season. Well, Derek Mason did some of that, but he also mixed up some other things with you know, kind of some ghost pressures, some simulated pressures, showing things, getting out of it, bailing, and then different stunts and different pr- pressure packages as well. So I, I don't know if Alabama is going to live like that ever again. I, I mean, I think they'll still be an RPO-based football team, but the fact that everything runs through Alabama's quarterback tells me that they could sort of manipulate it however they want. If they want to be a play-action team one week, they could. A RPO team one week, they could. We haven't really seen them just be – a straight drop back team where there's not many motions to the back, be it play action RPO, or they, it's just Bryce Young, take the ball, drop, throw. We haven't seen them live and die like that, but I absolutely think that they could if they needed to. So that's the, that was the adjustment that I feel like Bill O'Brien made. And I don't think there was enough of an adjustment by Dan Lanning and Kirby Smart defensively to be able to have an answer to it. And then obviously Georgia just didn't get home, plain and simple. 
And that, that defensive front had been dominant all year, and they could not find their way in the backfield often enough to be able to force Bryce Young to be uncomfortable. So I, I think Cincinnati has a couple of pieces where they'll be able to do some of those things, but the key is going to be how is Alabama living on offense first? You've got to figure that out quickly and then adjust your defensive calls accordingly, or else it might be too late, kind of like it was against Georgia, and they're hitting explosive play after explosive play, and then you're just trying to play catch-up for the entire second half. Gotcha. Okay, so that was a good way to enter into Georgia. At the end of this, at the end of the you, you doing the second game here, I'll make you make some picks. Um, but we go to the Orange Bowl is at night. It seems it, it's the game with the smaller spread. It seems like it has a chance to be a lot more competitive. Um, the the simple way to ask this, uh, Cole, is can Michigan do to Georgia what Alabama was able to Georgia? Does it have the 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 personality and the personnel? to be able to do something similar because we didn't see anybody else dent Georgia throughout the entire season other than Alabama. So, of course, we we immediately uh, reflexively say, well, you, then you have to follow that blueprint. So is that possible for Michigan? To do what Alabama did to Georgia? No, I don't believe so because the only time we've seen Michigan really beat that team this year was against Michigan State, and that's maybe the worst pass defense in the last 10 years of college football. So I, I don't think they can, they can do it that way, but that doesn't mean they can't win the game. I think they can have success. I think they can find success. And if I were George, well, let me just – let me kind of rewind going into all of this. My biggest question mark about this entire playoff, player, position group, side of the football, coaching perspective, philosophy scheme, any of it, is where is Georgia mentally and emotionally right now? Mm-hmm. Because I, I don't know, Ralph, I think, I think maybe I have a benefit of, of living in the Southeast and covering the SEC, obviously on a daily basis. I do a radio show on WJOX in Birmingham, Alabama. Uh, I, I do games on Saturday nights for the SEC Network. So I have, a, I have a real inherent advantage of understanding how much more that game meant than just the SEC championship trophy being on the line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you go back to the, the national championship game where Tua and Devontae Smith both initially made their mark on that same field in that same stadium. And then fast forward to another SEC championship game, how those have gone and why there's a chance that it's just going to be more harmful mentally and emotionally than another loss or a team that dropped a game, mm-hmm. say Alabama's lost to A&M. Now, there, there's, there's just – the Heisman Trophy was won that day. You lost the number one seed that day. You furthered the thought process that Nick Saban essentially owns Kirby Smart. He's 4-0 against Kirby outright now. And Alabama went to 3-0 and against Georgia in SEC championship games. Um, all of that just – there was a titanic shift in momentum, in feel, and in, I guess, just what people really thought about where everything was, not only nationally, but especially as how it pertained to teams in the Southeastern Conference. And I think Georgia had been carrying a lot of that confidence, a lot of that swagger for the entire season – no and I just wonder, I wonder how much of it was stripped away 
in four quarters of football in Atlanta, Georgia, a couple of weeks ago. Now, if they've had enough time where maybe they just move past it, maybe they, they have enough leadership to make that a motivational factor for them moving into this postseason. That's all possible and feasible. That's why I said it's my biggest question mark, because we're not going to know. And we might not know until seven, eight series into this game with Georgia and Michigan as they're facing off against one another. But if they're able to overcome that, then obviously they have a lot of benefit as to what they're going to be able to put on the field and problems they're going to be able to cause for Michigan. So that being said, I, I don't think Cade McNamara can go out and, and throw for 382 yards. I, I just don't think Michigan is built the same way that Alabama is. But where they are built is up front with an elite offensive line and a stable of elite tailbacks, a really good group of tight ends, and a quarterback that's a bit of a gamer. And I mean, when you put the film on of Cade McNamara, you will be wowed by some of the throws that he makes. But then you will absolutely ask yourself, what in the hell was that two or three times a game? Mm -hmm. And I think some of it is him just trying to make a play. Some of it is him pressing a little bit. Some of it's him getting off platform. He just, he has a little bit of that, Every now and then, I think I can do just about anything inside of him. And you want that occasionally. And the one good thing about that part of his game is that it usually doesn't come in a very high-risk way. It's usually on throws that are not going to end very poorly, even if they're bad. Mm -hmm. So he still finds ways to protect the football when he becomes that, but that consistency would be a little bit concerning. And if there is a, a little bit of a weakness – with the Michigan offensive line, and this is super, super, super nitpicky, it's that they have had an individual or two at certain points in time during the season sort of allow their pass protection to break down. That has not consistently happened. It's not a big problem. It's not a problem that you see every week. There have just been a couple of games. You look at Michigan State, you look at Penn State, that you've seen a guy just kind of struggle with a certain matchup a couple of times over the course of a game. And obviously this front, is going to be big time. This will be the best defensive front that Michigan has played, and they're going to absolutely be a handful. But what I love about what Michigan does on offense is they're stubborn, and they're stubborn in a really good way. I mean, they, they gap scheme the hell out of you. It's counter and power is what they do, and they will not give up on it. They are going to run it until they make it go. Is that a good thing against a team that is so difficult to run it against. In other words, are, are they in danger of wasting a bunch of possessions, banging their? I don't think it. I don't think it matters, and I think it is a good thing, Ralph, because my biggest concern outside of the mentals that we just spoke of with Georgia going into this game, if you wanted to talk scheme and X's and O's and philosophy and personnel, would be my offense. And yeah. it was yeah. it was it was the one big concern that I had going into the Alabama game that I talked about on my show with McElroy. And that was, do we really think Georgia consistently going to move the ball? And we didn't really know how they were going to do it because although Alabama has had a few letdowns this year, as we mentioned, Arkansas, Florida, a little bit of Tennessee, statistically across the course of the year, that defense has been pretty salty. And you saw Brock Bowers get going a little bit late. Obviously, I think that was some of Alabama just playing a certain way, but with Hutchinson and company up front, I would be very concerned about realistically what you're going to be able to do and be successful with for four quarters. And I don't see Georgia playing ground and pound. Like Georgia, if Georgia wants to go into this game and try to start a fist fight in an alley, Michigan will welcome that. And I think they'll enjoy it. And I think they'll get hit in the face a few times and they'll smile back and say, we're ready for a lot more. 
if that's the game you want to play, we came here to play it, and we've taken a lot of hits to the face this year, you're not going to knock us out. There will be no TKO from Georgia in this game from a physical perspective. They can't outmatch Michigan that way. So creativity on offense for Georgia is going to be critical or else I don't think the part that you're talking about with Michigan's offense matters. If you're Michigan, you're, if you say, all right, we might have to step on the gas our final two possessions to try to go win this thing, but we've gone toe-to-toe. All right, cool. We'll do that. We'll take that. We'll take our chances with that. Okay, so, you know, it, it's not – the scrutiny on Stetson Bennett has not been fair because he has been a very good player. But the fact of the matter is he is the quarterback of a number of a team that's been ranked number one in the country for a long time. Uh, He is not a spectacular player, but he is a very good player. So how much does the, is, is this about his ability to play at a high level against a very good defense? In other words, is, is he a quarterback that is quote unquote holding Georgia back. Is that a, could that be a fair assessment of Stetson Bennett? What is a fair assessment of Stetson, Stetson Bennett is what I'm asking you, Cole, because the poor kid has gotten it in a lot of different ways and he's really been a pretty good player. Yeah, I won't, I'm not one of the guys that's going to play the game of it better be JT Daniels. How can they get JT ready? If they don't get JT ready, they can't win. Because I, it sounds similar to you, saw where Stetson Bennett got that team across the course of this season. Um, I'm, I'm not going to try to compare him to Mike Vick or Cam Newton or even Mac Jones, but there are things that he's capable of doing inside of that offense with what he has around him that can be plenty successful. Now, if you just want to go to the Alabama game specifically, I would, I would tell you that you need to go first and foremost look at the drops in that game, and then you need to go watch protection in that game and a lack of a consistent rushing attack in that game, which are all things that I think if they're all compounded, then, yes, yeah, Stetson Bennett's going to look a lot less than average as your quarterback. But you said a word that, to me, I continue to try to keep bringing up as it pertains to him and this offense. And it's ability. What is any college football player's best ability, in your opinion? Any college football player's best ability? Well, availability to a certain There you go. No, you, you said it. That's it. And that's the only one that you need to know. So there is a reason that for the first six or seven games last year, JT Daniels couldn't break into the lineup. There is a reason that since the Clemson game, we have not regularly been able to see JT Daniels as Georgia's starting quarterback. I'll be damned if I'm going to risk putting a guy in that two or three series later, I have to make another change to get the other guy back in. Because at that point, I think what you really do is run the risk of harming the mentality, harming the feel of your team, the rhythm, the timing of your team. You don't want to disrupt the locker room at this point in the season. And Stetson Bennett has earned a lot of credit that he has with his teammates in that locker room. And I don't care if JT Daniels looks like Dan Marino at practice. It's obviously not something that is allowing him to become the guy in games recently. So, well, but Cole, I would also suggest that there's no way he does look like, I, I can't believe, like, I don't, Kirby Smart is a pretty smart guy and a pretty good football coach. If JT Daniels was looking like Dan Marino at practice, maybe this would be a different conversation. Like I have to give Kirby some benefit of the doubt 
that absolutely the kid is I mean, think not about, think about the things that Kirby, think about how Kirby has handled himself in the last two years, three years. I mean, the, the guy gives the perception that he is absolutely obsessed with winning a championship. How he recruits, how he coaches, what goes into coaching, whether it's moves on his staff, whether it's taking transfers, going and finding transfers. Kirby Smart will stop nowhere to improve his football team's chances of winning a national championship. So I agree with you to think that he would potentially risk this opportunity, knowing how rare they are, to give his team the best opportunity to win a title. I think is is moronic, to be honest with you. So no, I don't. I definitely don't think that's taking place. I definitely think that Stetson Bennett's a quarterback for a reason. It's not just because he was the starter when they won the majority of their games this year. He can be accurate when he has time. I think he throws a better deep ball than people give him credit for. His mobility is obviously valuable, and that's escapability and by design. So I think he gives you things that forces a defense to defend. And that's obviously going to open up things in other places where your offense can potentially be more successful. So there are attributes to his game that are strengths and that are difficult to defend and that make Georgia difficult to defend. They just have to find a way to call them against a really good defense that has a takeover guy of their own and someone who, if you don't account for and you're not careful with, can absolutely wreck your game plan. And, and put you into a place that you might not be able to crawl out of. Okay, so let me let me wrap it up. And you're right. You know, I think the other part of it with Kirby, and let me, I'll just throw this out there. I think there is this lingering sort of, hey, why didn't you keep Justin Fields around? And that's a completely different topic, and I'm not getting into it. But I think that because of the way that worked out with Fields and Fromm, a lot of people view the 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 current quarterback situation the same way. And I don't think JT Daniels is Justin Fields. I would just I would just say that. Let me hit you up with this though, Cole. I'm gonna have you wrap these two games together here. Give me a prediction on each game and sort of how it how you think they will play out. Start with Alabama, Cincinnati. Give me a prediction, but not just a hey, what the score is, but how you think it could play sure. out. Uh, I, I do think that Cincinnati will be competitive in this game. I think Cincinnati will provide Alabama with headaches in this game. There will be micro wins throughout the course of the game for Cincinnati in certain places, certain facets. I just think Alabama is in, in a little bit of a similar fashion to LSU in 19. They're just going to keep throwing haymakers on offense and they connect with a lot of them. And i I don't think Cincinnati, when it's all said and done, is going to be able to withstand enough of those to actually be able to win the game. Um, but I do think that that game will be competitive past halftime, and I think there will be things that Cincinnati does that they have success with that will probably surprise a lot of people and will keep them in the game. But just the explosive nature of what Alabama is offensively and Bryce Young being as good as he is will allow Alabama to sort of pull away in that game late. Um, the Michigan-Georgia game, I think, is going to be an absolute heavyweight title fight. I think it will be, I think it will be Wilder Fury 3 that we saw a couple of months ago, where in rounds 10, 11, 12, we literally don't know how the two opponents are standing up. How have they taken what they've taken? They've bludgeoned one another to death, and we don't know how they're breathing. 
I think it will be a very physical game. I think it will be a game in which you'll, you'll go back and talk about it as to one, two, three plays decided the game because you didn't see a lot of those explosive plays throughout the course of the game. But I think there are fewer questions about what Michigan is and where Michigan is right now as opposed to Georgia. So I think they just find a way. I think Michigan grinds out a win against Georgia and advances to the national championship game. Yeah, I, I, I will tell you this. where I, I don't know if I agree with your pick, but I do agree with this. Nobody's more confident about what they are, who they are, and whether they should be here than Michigan. They, that is a team that is if, – if, if Georgia has any questions about themselves and where they should be and, and the veneer of invincibility is gone a little bit and they are struggling with that at all, that is not Michigan. Michigan absolutely is here to, to, to take your stuff. Uh, so that that's an interesting facet of that of that matchup that's that that I find that I'm going to be sort of interested to see how it plays out, because if one team is at, at in the slightest bit damaged mentally, it might be Georgia. And I know Michigan is not that way. Michigan has never been more confident under Harville. I would agree 100 percent. And like I said, I think that even when Michigan's making mistakes, they've rarely been fatal. Or, or even close to fatal. Obviously, you know, the fumble in the Michigan State game, um, you could point to that and, and say that it was way out of character, way abnormal. But I just – they're not a team that seems to be doing a lot of soul-searching right now. And I think there's a ton of value going into a game with an opponent that's going to be very similar in style and nature. Cole Kubelik, you can find him on the SEC Network and on ESPN and on WJOX in the mornings with Greg McElroy. Uh, Cole is the uh, is the is the more handsome one of the two on that on that show. Uh, Cole, man, Merry Christmas, safe travels. Thank you so much for the breakdown, and uh, you know, happy bowl season, man. Hey, I appreciate you having me. I'm- yeah, you always deliver the goods, Cole. Thanks. And now three and out. First down, wanted to get back to what I mentioned briefly with Cole about George's quarterback situation. I have always been somewhat critical of Kirby Smart over how the Justin Fields situation played out. A coach cannot let a player of that caliber at that position leave his program and be absolved of all blame. It's not a fireable offense, and I understand he couldn't make Fields stay. Smart could have done everything right, and Fields might still have transferred. But again, you can't let the best quarterback on your roster, the best quarterback you have had so far at Georgia, walk out the door and not have that count as a bit of a black mark on your resume. However... If Georgia doesn't win a national title this year, and in the process it looks like Stetson Bennett held the Bulldogs back, Smart will take heat for that. But I have not seen enough of a healthy JT Daniels to lead me to the conclusion that he is the talent anywhere near the level of Justin Fields. I'm willing to give Smart a lot of the benefit of the doubt in this situation and say that if Daniels was actually the better choice to be playing quarterback for Georgia, he would be. Second down. I will very carefully try to make a point here about COVID and how it is impacting sports again. At this point, the question can reasonably be asked, how hard 
do we want to and need to look for the virus, especially within controlled settings like sports teams? There was a point during the pandemic when we started asking that question, at least some people started asking the question, and the answer was pretty clearly, we need to be searching really aggressively because without vaccines, everybody was in some way vulnerable and letting the virus run wild was going to kill a lot of people. That's not the case now. So what we have is another example during this crisis of building the plane while flying it. I'm really hoping that we can get through bowl season and we're recording this on a Tuesday, there's actually a game about to kick off, I think, without a whole lot of disruptions. Currently, college basketball is getting hammered by cancellations and disruptions, but just because basketball is getting tipped on its head doesn't necessarily mean football will, too. Here's why. If you have even a few basketball players unavailable, it can cripple your team, so you might as well call off that game. Uh, Another thing... A lot of the basketball games at this time of the year are non-conference games when there's not a whole lot of people on campus. So the cost of canceling these games is not particularly high. The next move, in fact, I think we'll see is conferences starting to pull back on their forfeit policies put in place to encourage vaccination and things along those lines. Well, now that everybody's vaccinated, It seems to make sense to allow games to be rescheduled or deemed no contest. However, pause on that for a second. I would guess you will see some of that in the coming days as far as changing the policies. But I can guarantee you that there are some administrators and coaches who are worried about COVID issues being used as an excuse to duck games. We had that last year. There was talk about that here, there and everywhere. But the state of affairs with COVID was so bad that most in college sports just decided to let it go. There will be less tolerance for that now. I think football teams trying to get to and through their bowl games will take some extra precautions in terms of masks, distancing, keeping their players away from outsiders for a few weeks, maybe not allowing them to go home. I've heard Cincinnati encourage their players to stay on campus. Of course, they're traveling on Christmas Day to get to the Orange Bowl. So it's not like they're keeping their kids away from Christmas. They were probably already going to be separated from their families for most of the holiday time. But I would also expect teams, whether it's the ones in the college football playoff or the ones playing in other bowl games, to be very particular about who gets tested and when. And at this point, I don't see a problem with that. Third Down and Third Down is a programming note. We will have a podcast next week coming to you from South Florida, where I will be covering the Orange Bowl between Georgia and Michigan. It can be a hectic week. And while my plan is to have the episode in your feeds on Tuesday, late afternoon-ish, as usual, there is always a chance it gets bumped back a bit. Thank you in advance for your patience. That is the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, John Radcliffe, for making me sound good. Merry Christmas to you, John. You can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, just about anywhere you like to get your pods. Please follow so you do not miss an episode. And a very Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to everyone. I hope you all get whatever college football gift you are hoping for. 
I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. Oh.